On October 18, 2016, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation hosted a film screening in partnership with Netflix of Ava DuVernay's documentary, The 13th. A post-screening discussion was held with Khalil Gibran Mohammed, Professor of History, Race, and Public Policy at Harvard Kennedy School and the Suzanne Young Murray Professor at the Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Study. Joining Khalil was Lawrence Ralph, John L. Loeb Associate Professor of the Social Sciences in the Departments of Anthropology and African and African American Studies at Harvard University. This event was part of Race in American Politics, an event series hosted by the Ash Center and co-sponsored by the Malcolm Weiner Center for Social Policy and the Hutchins Center for African and African American Research. For more information, please visit ash.harvard.edu. Institute, as well as a professor of history, race, and public policy at the Harvard Kennedy School. Uh, it is a uh, joy to have this official role in welcoming you to tonight's screening. And I want to say that on behalf of my colleague, Leah Wright Lager, this event is part of the Race in American Politics series, which she chairs. Dr. Wright is an assistant professor of public policy at the Harvard Kennedy School. And this event is organized in collaboration with the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation and is co-sponsored by the Malcolm Wiener Center for Social Policy and the Hutchins Center for African and African American Studies. So let's give our sponsors uh, a nice welcome and applause. We also are grateful for Netflix and allowing us to screen the film in a public setting. They are very keen to encouraging a sustained and ongoing dialogue about the issues raised by this film. I'm also, I must say, as a newcomer to the Harvard University campus, uh, very pleased that there are so many undergraduate students. Uh, either that or there's a fountain of youth around the corner and there are just a lot of very spry and youthful faces. Uh, but uh, it is, uh, I think, important that this film sparks an intergenerational dialogue about the history of this country and its role in the world uh, and the continuing challenges we face about the very nature of freedom and democracy in America. So uh, kudos to Netflix for supporting this work and for helping to convene us here this evening. Just want uh, to add uh, that this film, The 13th, is a filmic homage to the new Jim Crow and com prominently features Michelle Alexander, among many, many others. New York Times film critic Manola Darvis writes, Ms. DuVernay forcefully and sorrowfully challenges that confidence assertion, tracing the history of systems of racial control from the years after the abolition of slavery all the way to George Zimmerman speaking to a police dispatcher about the 17-year-old Trayvon Martin. Because as she sifts through American history, you grasp the larger implications of her argument. The United States did not just criminalize a select group of black people. It criminalized black people as a whole, a process that in addition to destroying untold lives, effectively transferred the guilt for slavery from the people who perpetrated it to the very people who suffered from it. Please stay following the film for a post-film discussion. Lawrence Ralph will join me on stage. He is the John L. Loeb Associate Professor of Social Sciences in the Department of Anthropology, as well as African and African American Studies here at Harvard University. He is author, also author of Renegade Dreams, Living Through Injury and Going Home to Chicago. We will kick off a conversation which we hope many of you will join in either with wonderful questions or terrific comments and reflections on the film. With that, the show begins. Here tonight, I think that uh, by both the silence of the room, the quiet, um, that 
the film struck a powerful chord. Uh, and I want to remind you that uh, this is uh, as much about a conversation with all of us rather than anything that Lawrence and I can say that the film has in itself already said in terms of the context of, the, of this history, uh, how it's still with us. I think it's interesting to think about these final shots, Lawrence, I don't know if you thought about it, but um, a lot of the reviews have described the film uh, as haunting. Uh, in fact, one review described it as a horror film. And in a film that's definitely long on challenging narratives and short on levity, uh, these final shots, I think, are meant to carry that weight uh, to show uh, in the most banal ways um, the joy, the pleasure, uh, the living of black people in the midst of all this madness. Um, so I've seen the film, obviously I contributed to it, um, and I've had the pleasure of, of talking to Ava and so many of the um, experts featured in the film. Um, but I'm curious, you're a scholar um, of black community life in all of its wonderful permutations as well as some of the challenges, the perils, surviving violence itself. So what about this film strikes you as resonant or dissonant with your own work? Um, I mean, the first thing I'd like to say is that it's a extremely powerful film. And I think the first thing that strikes me is just the weight, the weight of the film. And so I would um, agree with the reviews. In terms of my own work, I do research in uh, low-income Chicago, and I, I do work on uh, gang violence and the consequences of gang violence. Um, and so there was a lot of things that were resonant with the film, particularly when it comes to mass incarceration. In the community where I do work in, um, there's a, you know, 50, 7% of the population is in some way entangled in the criminal justice system, either incarcerated in, or on parole or probation. And when it comes to black males in, in particular, that raises to about 70%. And black women are the fastest growing population that are incarcerated in that community. So a lot of the themes resonate. But more than anything, I think that the idea of struggle itself resonates. Uh, when I first began doing research in Chicago, I started in gang prevention, and I was working with um, older gang members uh, who were trying to uh, educate the community about questions of violence and questions about incarceration. And when I say older gang members, uh, these men were in their 70s. Right? And so that was the first thing that strike, struck me, right? How could you be 70 years old and still claiming affiliation to a gang? But what they meant, I came to find out, was that uh, the gang doesn't have to be violent, the gang is not inherently violent, and the gang hasn't always been violent. And they connected gang affiliation to some of the struggles that we saw in the movie like Fred Hampton and Black Power and like Martin Luther King and um, his time living in Chicago. And so I think that reoccurring struggle in a way to articulate one's demands in the face of persistent criminalization uh, really resonated with me as far as the movie. So by a show of hands to get you guys to come out of your shells, I, let me just double check with the tech crew. Are we gonna do a passing mic? Okay, and you have one or two? Two, okay, great. So again, this is not gonna be us passing on pearls of wisdom. It's really an opportunity to engage and to you know, ask questions of yourselves. So let me start that off by saying, by a show of courageous hands, did you learn something new in this film? Wow, that's really, really important. And maybe to slice it just a little bit, um, by a show of hands, was it the history or the present? So history first. If it was more history in terms of understanding the deep roots of this problem that impressed you as new information, raise your hand. Okay, and now the other side, the present. Okay, 
But since it's the present and I'm curious, because my mom saw the film, she said, you know, there's this one part. Okay, so I'll share with you what she said about that. Um, was it the section on Alec, the American Legislative Exchange Council? Yes, okay, I thought so. And that's the part my mom said, you know, that part kind of slowed down a little bit. Uh, <laughs> and it's interesting because I felt the same way watching it for the first time. And the reason, if this is true for anyone who's um, sort of been impressed or shocked by a problem, and then you sort of go on your own journey to understand it, and then what happens? You want to share it with everybody. And I think that's what happened with Ava. She stumbled into this world, and all of a sudden, she couldn't believe it. Uh, and so that part of the film got a lot of attention, but I think it was time well spent uh, because it is incredibly sinister <laughs> and it's complicated. Um, I'm curious, I mean, so, so Lawrence is talking about the violence part of the equation. And oftentimes in a, in a story like this, um, we really are talking about the domination part, the oppression part, and we read these narratives of violence as counter narratives in an effort to shift the burden of responsibility for the system from the system itself back to people. And I'm, I'm wondering, since, since you're invested in the work of violence, how would you challenge us to be able to hear both? Yeah, I mean, when I was watching the film, partly because Michelle Alexander is in the film, but also because uh, I heard her give a talk at Tufts a couple of years ago on the new Jim Crow, I was reminded of something she said to start the book, to start the talk, which was that when she, she had recently seen the movie 12 Years a Slave, and there's a scene in the movie where uh, the protagonist, um, Solomon Northrop, is, is being hung, right, by, by his neck. But he's able, he's, he's hung from a low branch, and so he's, he's on his tippy toes, and that's how he's unable to get just enough air um, to allow himself to. It's, he's being tortured. He's being he's tortured, right. He's actually not right. meant to be, he's right. meant right. to be tortured. Yeah. Right, so he's being tortured and he's being punished, and while he's being punished, uh, people are going about their daily lives, kids are playing in the background, you can see the overseers um, watching him, the lady of the house is watching him, and almost a full day passes from day to night. And she said that that scene reminds her of mass incarceration because there's a way in which people are going about their daily lives while this big thing is in our view, right? And to connect kind of the violence part of the equation with Alex, right? With Alex, sorry. So it's not just that that's in our view and we're ignoring it, but it's that we're actively being seduced uh, to disengage with the problem of uh, mass incarceration and for particular reasons, right? So, um, you know, corporations are invested in ideology and a discourse of personal responsibility. Our politics are invested in uh, discourse of personal responsibility. Our institutions like schools keep that discourse. And so there's an active way that we are taught to ignore uh, the forms of violence and punishment that are visited on millions and millions of Americans every day. And so, yes, yeah, so, so to connect those two threads, I think, yes, there is violence and there is domination, but there's a way in which we learn how to ignore that violence and domination that I think that um, the film did a great job of showing the intricate steps to that. So, so, so the police obviously come off uh, from their role as slave patrollers uh, to uh, arm of the state to repress the civil rights movement, uh, to any number of instances of uh, state violence perpetrated more recently that have been captured on videotape and animated the work of the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, so one way to think about all this work from protests uh, to scholarship uh, to cultural products like this film 
uh, is to measure what happened in the news just today, interestingly. And I'm wondering if, if you, since you study policing more explicitly, um, have any thoughts. So Kerry Cunningham is the president of the International Association of Chiefs of Police. Uh, they are holding their annual conference and probably the first annual conference, at least from what I can tell in the news reporting, I'm a historian, so whenever things I don't know, I just say it, it happened yesterday and that's not history. So best I can tell from, from news reporting, this was probably the first conference that's had to deal full on with the Black Lives Matter movement, its policy prescriptions, Attorney General Lynch, uh, and a president who has uh, determined at this late stage of his presidency to have a full throttle critique of the criminal justice system. So here, Kerry Cunningham, for those who haven't read the paper today, says that he, he literally apologizes for historic abuses and violence perpetrated by law enforcement against the black community. And I, I wonder if uh, what people think about that. Should we do another straw poll? Uh, yeah. is, <laughs> is, you know, I guess the, the kind of somewhat simple question is, um, is this a good thing by show of hands? Courageous show of hands. I will put my hand up because in the absence of an apology, it certainly would be a defense and I would see that as an absolutely bad thing. Now the obvious question I could ask is just to make it obvious is, is it enough? So. If you think it's enough, raise your hand. No, all right. <laughs> and, and the interesting thing about it not being enough is, I don't know how many of you are watching the epic series America Divided. Um, if you've seen that, if you've not seen America Divided, you should absolutely watch it. I mean, it is, it, it is as riveting as this documentary, in my opinion. Um, it uses contemporary celebrities, uh, Common, Jesse Williams, uh, Norman Lear, uh, for the younger folks in the audience, creator of Good Times and All in the Family, as well as uh, Rosario Dawson. And they're looking uh, at the Flint water crisis, affordable housing crisis, and violence in Chicago. First episode, Common interviews Gary McCarthy, who is the uh, fired former police commissioner under Emanuel when Laquan McDonald, the 17-year-old, was shot 16 times walking away from the police. He was... Uh, ultimately let go. He had been the police commissioner of Newark, which is now under federal consent decree. It's amazing that he keeps getting these jobs. But he says to Common, uh, to a prompt essentially, what do you make of uh, what's going on today around the conversation about policing? He says that police officers have been, that the historical oppressors of the black community from slavery to Jim Crow, and it's like, well, wait a minute. So there's something interesting about how history is becoming an easy conceit for people. And the question I would I'd love to ask Gary McCarthy, who then cites the numbers of black people killed in Chicago uh, in his follow-up response, and then to ask Kerry Cunningham is, so when did history end? Hmm. When, when did history end? What, what's that? So, so let's take another straw poll. So how many people think this, this history we keep talking about ended in, say, 1965? No one's gonna raise their hand, obviously. <laughs> How about 1968 when fair housing legislation was passed? How about 1972 when Congressional Black Caucus was formed um, and represented a high watermark uh, for federal representation? Uh, let's see, Clarence Thomas's appointment <laughs> under Ronald Reagan. How about Condoleezza and Colin Powell in the 90s? I mean, you get the point, right? So. It forces us into this interesting conversation about how we periodize the past as it's something that's clean and, and neat that we can separate ourselves from. Um, all right, so I saw one hand back there. Somebody raised their hand. Again, this is an invitation to a conversation between you uh, and each other. Yep, how's your answer? Victoria. <laughs> Victoria, I'm sorry. It's on my Vic head, Victoria. I'm bad with names. Don't do that. <laughs> Anyhow, um, a couple of things. Uh, one is a point that I think is important for us to, to make, or at least for me to make. Um, when the movie showed how 
Willie Horton was the way that we kind of conjured up this image of the black man as this predator and how that was used for political reasons. That is still happening today. You have Maine Governor Paul LePage who said D-Money and Smoothie are coming up here bringing drugs and half the time impregnating white girls. We have to love the D-Money and Smoothie. D-Money and Smoothie. And he said that we should bring back the guillotine. He said that there should be, um, uh, that we should be arming ourselves and getting rid of these drug dealers. And then he goes on and says, uh, these are different points, he's, or different periods of time over a one-year period, starting like 2015, basically. He goes on and says that um, he had to make these crazy comments to get his legislator to act and to put money into uh, some of the um, uh, drug programs and um, criminal justice things that he wanted. And the thing is, his legislators did act. They were actually motivated by D-Money Smoothie coming and impregnating those young white girls. That was 2015, that was 2016, and that governor is still sitting. This is a current governor. So that's not just something that happened back in the late 80s. This is happening today. And I think it's important for us to remember that. And then the other point that I wanna make going back to history, or not even point, but question is reparations, right? I know that history or slavery, that might be a hard one to sell. But for the war on drugs, we know who were the victims. We know who was incarcerated. We know who their children were. We know who was taking care of them. We know who their uh, grandmas were, their aunties. We know who had uh, their wealth, um, I guess, impeded because they were taking care of their uh, nephews and nieces and grandchildren because those parents were locked up. We know the children who did not have their parents involved. We, and we are now saying that it was a mistake. We are now saying that we know why it happened. The guy who kind of orchestrated it said, we did it to deliberately lock up black people. We have that. Why aren't we having a reparations moment for the war on drugs, the war on poor black people, when we have so much information about who the victims were, who the perpetrators were, and the consequences of it? That's an open question. Why, why not? So if anybody wants to take up that, Lawrence, do you have? Um, yeah, I mean, I have some comments. I mean, I think one of the important things of the film um, was to keep reminding us of not just the fact of history repeating itself, but the way that history repeats itself and that it changes forms to produce the same effects um, precisely at the moment of reform. And so that we should be skeptical uh, and I think that, you know, your comments are getting at this. We should be skeptical. Our ears should be per uh, perked up whenever certain concessions are made. Like, what, what is not being said in those concessions? Or more to the point, what are the loopholes uh, within that concession that allow uh, injustice to uh, keep going? And, and along with that, uh, I think that we have to reimagine what accountability means. We have to reimagine what solutions to the problem means and reparations are a big part of that. I'm actually working, uh, part of my research now is to study the torture cases in Chicago. So I don't know how many of you guys are familiar with that, but in the 70s through the 90s, over 100 black people in Chicago were tortured while in police custody. Uh, but in 2015, they won reparations from the city of Chicago and their list for the reparations had particular demands. And so I think nothing's off the table. I think that we have to be inventive in the way that we imagine what's possible and vigilant in the way that we critique even apologies. One of the things that was most powerful to me was when a congressman from New York uh, said that he was actually involved in- Sorry, yeah, Charlie Rangel was involved in getting the crime bill passed. And we know that, speaking to the sister's question, why is it that we're not getting reparations or looking at mass incarceration as something like enslavement 
that we need reparations for, it's the counter argument that's going to come back is that, hey, you have black Congress people involved in getting mass incarceration up off the ground. You have uh, black people in communities now when they see crime happening on the street. Their first response isn't always about restorative justice or trying to find alternatives. A lot of people just want that drug dealer off the corner. And throughout the 90s, that was what people were saying. And so as a result, it's not an easy narrative, just black versus white. It's uh, a, can, a, a clear uh, line of, of accountability for racial aggression. It's a mixed bag. And so I think we have to look in, into our own hearts and think about the idea of criminalization because a lot of us in the black community have also bought into the idea of the black male as criminal in particular. And we have to find a way to work within our community so that when we see a brother on the corners involved in, in certain types of activities, we think of different responses. We don't just call the police or call 911 and ask them to solve the problem. We try to solve the problem ourselves and create healthy communities through building community. Uh, the young lady next to him has a, had a response, so let's hear from her. Not to put you on the spot, but I actually read an article last week by Elizabeth Hinton and some other people, and it was the Did Blacks Really um, Support the 94 Crime Bill? And in it, she argues that actually black people did not only call for stronger criminal justice measures, but they asked, they explicitly asked for more investment in their communities, for more preventative programs. So what happens during the, during the memory of the 94 crime bill, there is a lot of, I guess, I, I forget the word. There is a lot of victim blaming because there was a lot of selective hearing while that bill was in the floor and while that bill was being advertised. So we need to remember, we need to give credit to people from the hood and from the ghetto. They're so smart. So let's always, whenever you hear these kind of odd-sounding history bites, remember to complicate that history. Remember to give people from the hood for the people who are mostly the main people in this narrative. Remember to give them credit. Remember to critique how that is racialized and how they are presented is class as well. Yeah, I mean, there's an uh, interesting, there's sort of the obvious example, standard bearer of this punitive law and order ethos within the black community is Sheriff David Barber, the sheriff of Milwaukee County, uh, who has become a very outspoken surrogate for Donald Trump's presidential campaign, uh, who is now officially running on a law and order platform as the film, of course, depicts. Uh, so there are always, um, which makes the racism of America so revealed, precisely because it has uh, created a straitjacket for black humanity um, without recognizing the same diversity of perspectives and experiences that are taken for granted in a white world. This is, you know, this is what one would expect among human beings who would disagree. Um, I saw some other hands come up, so I'm going to take questions from the back and then we'll come back up to the front, uh, in the middle section up there. Yes? Hi, yes. Um, I had two things to say. First, to the reparations point, I think when we think about reparations, we often think of government reparations, that we should look to the government to repay this kind of amorphous group of black people. But I think we need to think about the redirection of funds and institutions and funds from public systems, not just from governments. Um, I go to the School of Public Health. I'm a pediatrician. And so I'm talking over there about how we're going to redirect funds that hospitals have as a result of being nonprofit entities in communities in the hood, which means you don't have to pay taxes to that community. And so basically you exploit that community, right, by being able to have this big business, which then sometimes gentrifies that community because then you have to have a place for your workforce to live, but then you don't reinvest in that community with programs that are supposed to give back, which are specifically called community benefits for people who are interested. Um, so there are other ways to think about reparations than just asking our governments. We should be asking our institutions. And here at Harvard, right, with the HUD's workers' strike, we should be asking Harvard to give basically reparations, right? Don't allow systems of oppression to continue to perpetuate inequalities among people of color and workers. Um, my other point, though, was to say I'd like to know more about what the crowd thinks and maybe what you guys think about a little bit of the maybe overlooking, I don't know if that's the right word, of 
black women in the piece. Uh, specifically, um, we need to think historically about black women, right? So when you talk about convict leasing, when you talk about chain gangs, that wasn't just black men, that was black women on the line doing the same labor that black men were doing, not at the same rate, so the absolute numbers were not the same, but the disproportionality between black women and white women was, right, that's massive. To overlook that is huge. Or when they put up the one in three, we always talk about the one in three risk of going to jail in your lifetime, right, versus one in 17 for white men. We need to talk about the one in 18 black women versus one in 111 white women. And you mentioned, and I appreciate that, that black women are the highest, um, the fastest growing rate of inmates right now, but I felt a little bit slighted. It was great to hear black women historians and black women activists speak, but to also feel silenced in the fact that black women aren't just collateral damage of mass incarceration, they are also victims. question um, about how people think this, well, let me, let me rephrase for this. So how many people like Jeff Helms think that this and will not move the needle in some extended constellation of their families in the social network? Okay, and I'm curious, without having to bear witness personally to whatever those counter arguments are, if you could think about how you might describe why not would be helpful. So of the hands I just saw raised, th think about sharing and I'll come back to you as we come up to the next question, unless someone's ready to go now. Okay. Yeah, I think that's an easy question to answer. Most of my family, uh, most of the folks uh, are not gonna see it. <laughs> you can't have a conversation about what you're not willing to engage in. And so um, that's the first thing. It's not a conversation that's happening with this set of facts from this lens all over America. Thank you, thank you for that. Um, because I think, you know, just as, as someone who sat in this space um, for a long time now, when uh, I would go to conferences to talk about my work in particular, but in, within larger conversations around these issues, and, uh, and literally no one would show up. There would be the three panelists and the moderator, and that would be the end of it. Um, so from where I sit, a lot has changed, but we can be, we can overstate the self-selective nature of the conversation um, and kid ourselves that just because we're here, the rest of the world is listening. Before I miss an opportunity, I wanna give uh, two book citations to uh, the last commentator's statement about the invisibility of the disproportionate experience of criminalization and incarceration among black women. Uh, Talithia LaFloria wrote a book recently called Chained in Silence. She's a historian, and it is about the experience of black women serving on chain gangs. Uh, the other book is written by a woman named Sarah Haley, who writes about, uh, she's more of an American studies person, but she writes about carceral punishment for black women as domestics. So essentially, uh, the site of coercive labor through the criminal justice system happens for men on prison farms, in coal mines, but for women, they were often punished in a domestic arena, all the same, subject to abuse, humiliation, uh, punishment. And one just interesting way in which this might have expanded this story, the adaptive strategies of black women experiencing this form of brutal punishment uh, were to not bathe themselves, because in those contexts, there's always the threat of sexual violence, so they would go unkempt for the purposes of making themselves less attractive. So what it reveals is a whole nother way of thinking about and looking at this problem um, beyond what we generally have through the experience of men. Okay, so are you done? Okay. from a feminist perspective that in our oversight about black women and not just adding them, but actually centraling, you know, uh, you know, making them central in our analysis that we actually predict, we ignore these new iterations because we are not taking the race in, 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 the, in the whole, right? We are not 
looking at the race in mass and we are ignoring the new iteration of reform. Had we seen welfare reform as connected to this war on crime, we would have seen that black women were central in that road, right? They were the intersection. In that, I want to ask, you know, uh, from a historical perspective and an anthropological perspective, what are the sort of largest points at which we actually did not see these things coming in our history, right? Sociology has often been critiqued, like, well, if sociology is so great, why didn't you see the civil rights movement coming? You know, why didn't you see Black Lives Matter movement coming? And I say we're not that great, right? That's always my answer. <laughs> but are there points at which we actually were on the verge of seeing the new iteration at which there were, you know, those who were waving the flag about it and that that was somehow suppressed or ignored or, or were there points at which we can just admit like we should have seen this coming? It's a good question. I, I haven't, uh, I'll take a stab at it <laughs> so you guys have some responses too. So historians don't predict things, although one could say that given the consistency, I mean, so I would argue that racial criminalization is the through line in its uh, def definition of diminished humanity for men, women, and children. So children can't be children. Uh, in this schema, they, even to this day, in at least three remaining states are presumptively prosecuted as adults. And those are tied directly to black youth. So racial criminalization is a through line that makes it at least possible if you center that, that you could anticipate some of this. But I think there are two countervailing moments that I think open up how hard it would have been. So if you take, say, 1961, or better still, even 19, no, 1964 is too late. So somewhere between 1960 and 1964, somewhere between the sit-in movement and the Civil Rights Act, uh, you've got really this anti-racist jail movement. So black people are deliberately using their incarceration as a moral indictment of the bankruptcy of America. And this is really most famously captured in the Henry Hampton series, Eyes on the Prize of the segment called Ain't Going to J uh, Ain't Scared in Your Jails No More. That's exactly the moment when uh, cities across the North are experiencing massive state repression, um, white flight, deindustrialization, and the reconstitution of their spati spatiality, like where they live with highways and things like this, which is very much about the new carceral state making, you know, it's rearing its ugly head. I mean, racial criminalization is not the same thing as mass incarceration by dint of the fact that um, most black bodies stayed out of prison for much of the postbellum to contemporary period. It was only in the midst of redundancy to some degree that you see um, this massive buildup of prisons to incapacitate and contain. Um, so I look at that moment and think that would have been really hard to predict. You got Southern black folks fighting for civil rights, going to jail as part of a strategy, and you got black folks up north in places like Detroit and Cleveland and other parts of the Rust Belt who are ending up in jail because um, they don't want to be there, uh, but for reasons of underground economies as well as dissent, um, that's where they land. So I don't know that it would have been easy to see that mass incarceration was, was an eventuality. And please just agree, and don't be polite <laughs> if you have a totally different take on that. Uh, I have a, a different take, not a critique, but a, another way of uh, looking at kind of unforeseen consequences, maybe in a, uh, a strategically good way. And I get that your question, Saeed, as well. And I think, like, part of the reason why, so you talked about, like, the inability to center black women makes it so we can't see the full spectrum of the carceral state. But in a similar way, right, the inability of centering black women today has made it such that nobody could see the political power of Black Lives Matter, too, mm. you know what I mean? And Van Jones kind of mentioned that, but another way the film could have been enhanced was by centering that as a black feminist intervention, right? Which, so it's just not happenstance that it's diffuse, right? It's like, as a point of black feminist ideology that um, 
have a form of charismatic leadership at the center of it, you, but you have uh, a kind of multivalent kind of form of engaging as a social practice, um, which has made um, Black Lives Matter what it is today, and which, it, which also makes it um, unable to be co-opted in the same way, or contained, or, or corralled in the same way. And I think that has been an important intervention and continues to be an important intervention in the way that, again, that we imagine um, spaces of liberation or imagine what's possible or even imagine um, how we I identify or engage with the problem. And I think it's, it's also unforeseen in the sense that in a short am amount of time, I think the American public's engagement with media has shifted such that it's no longer a kind of people are watching, tele watching a show at nine o'clock or something like that, but people engage with media differently and Black Lives Matter is coming in the, on the cusp of a new way of orienting uh, towards media as well. And black people in general were disproportionately engaged with things like Twitter and Facebook um, at the time that it emerges. And so that also um, adds to its success at creating an alternate narrative of what media is. And so I think that has helped too in the sense that, yes, of course, historically, African-Americans have been success, as susceptible to uh, public discourse uh, that of black criminality perpetuated through the media as any other American population because they're engaging with the media in the same way. But at this particular moment in time, we're not engaging with the media in the same way necessarily as everybody else. And I think that is allowed for you know, a different engagement with the problem of criminalization at this particular moment. And, you know, when the, I think to, to start your comments, Lil, you talked about how uh, the, con the editorial comment was like, this is like a horror film, right? I mean, and I, I yes and no, I see that. Um, you know, yes, it's horrific, but it's not like a horror film that's over in two hours, you know, it's like a horror film that you engage with every time you you open your phone for some people, and I think that that has been you know one of the biggest changes too. So it's late; we've been here a while, so we'll take two more questions, and um, I, I'm just going to close my eyes and let Melissa pick because I don't want to be accused of any favorites. <laughs> um, I I'm not sure that this is so much a question, but um, just things that I've thought about watching the film and listening to the comments. One of the things that really piqued my interest, you talked about through lines. Mm -hmm. And one through line, which is I think is missing in the film, was the use of black African labor. Because if you look historically, we were brought here to pick cotton. And our history has waxed and waned along with the economic needs of this society. And I think that we are being blindsided by the fact that we are no longer needed in this society. And this has been, it's been hard. I think this is what we don't see. Um, Michelle Alexander talks a little bit about it in The New Jim Crow when she says that, well, we are expendable. So what does that mean? And if that is true, and I think it is true, then what is our response to that? Um, the other thing in the film that is important, that there is a pipeline between what's happening in our, with our children in school and mass incarceration. It's a complex tapestry. And if we don't understand the role of miseducation, the lack of a purposeful, right? And the structures that create that, including um, No Child Left Behind and Obama's Race to the Top, right? where our children are being graduated with a 10th grade education and expected to go out in the world and work for where, in a world where there's no work for that level of skill. So that's structural. The other thing, I'm moving to the other side, I mean, what do we do? I don't have a rubber bullet or you know, a quick answer. I'm a product of SNCC, um, student nonviolent clinic, so that's my age. <laughs> um, and 
I think about that history, not just historically, but it's personal. It took, what did it take to produce Fanny Wilhelmer? Part of the problem is that we really, I find, and my children, grandchildren, think individualistically, as opposed to, or SNCC would not have been possible, Fanny Wilhelmer would not have been possible, and the changes that were created without organization, not just mobilization, but organization. And what part of what required that organization, what we had in the movie Fred Hampton, but we worked for $9.64 a week to organize in the backwoods of Mississippi, Alabama. So what is it going to take to create a movement that's going to address these really deep and complex issues? And so organizers are needed, and we also need to make demands. We have not made any specific demands. We've given Hillary Clinton our votes, right, and our support, right, without any, any demand. And so that, I think that that's a really, really big problem for us. So I think the good side is that there is a history of organization, of movement that has to be created if we're going to face this problem. We're going to have to name this problem for what it is, and it's not about relations between black people and communities with the police. It's about us as an oppressed people dealing with the system that finds us now expendable. The other point in history, somebody mentioned that slavery ended in 1865, so I don't know how many people have read um, Slavery by Another Name. So there's another date to remember, and it ties into the use of black labor. The convict leasing system was renamed from convict leasing to slavery by um, Attorney General Biddle. He Biddle, Biddle, he was working under the Roosevelt administration. He did that seven days. He said that no longer would we allow these black people to be locked up as convict laborers because it's slavery. It's not convict leasing. It's slavery, and slavery is illegal. So Circular 3591, you should all read it, and I, think, I hope that every young person looks at it here, that that was virtually the end of slavery in this country. And that was December 12, 1941, six weeks before I was born. So to understand how we, our labor has been used, um, abused, and that it is no longer needed, and what the institutions are that are making this real for us um, requires, I think, a different um, way of approaching this issue and coming together and seeing if we can find some solutions. But nothing is going to happen without organization. So I'm. Thank you. So I'll say just uh, very quickly um, that. You should be hopeful that the black women who are featured here uh, are caring for that tradition. Um, and it may be an invitation to see their work more intentionally because a colleague of mine, Barbara Ramsby, is, and another colleague, Kathy Cohen, two academics, social scientists, and historian, have channeled that legacy um, to help politicize and empower, and this one just sets them apart, a lot of the on-the-ground activism that black women are leading in Chicago right now. And, uh, and they're very intentional about learning lessons from Ella Baker and Fannie Lou Hamer and set them apart. So I, there's actually a reason to be hopeful that, that the organization you describe, which is never mass or popular even, but is visible um, and is causing a lot of heartache in Chicago and hopefully much more for the nation in particular. So um, we have a mic up here in front. Hi, um, so I'm a former student of Professor Ralph's, so um, I have a question specifically for you. Um, now that I'm in social work school, I'm thinking a lot about the ways that um, the sort of effects of mass incarceration have sort of ripples in other areas, and so I'm thinking about um, particularly parts of the movie um, that could have easily gone into the ways that um, like welfare reform is obviously very heavily like tied in terms of rhetoric of dehumanization. Specifically, I'm thinking of like welfare queen and like crack baby rhetoric, doing the same sorts of rhetorical things that uh, I think criminal criminalizing rhetoric does. Um, and so I'm wondering what are the ways that we can now make more visible 
the effects of, for example, the police and specifically the officers who bring people into my inpatient psych unit every day, um, or the judges who are making decisions about, you know, patients on my unit, often, you know, with a very, very clear racial dynamic happening there. Um, what are the ways that we can make the effects of mass incarceration and um, violence on the part of the carceral state um, more visible in other institutions that we're interacting with on a daily basis, whether that be the education system in the school to prison pipeline or the mental health system or as other folks have mentioned, um, the healthcare system more broadly? Yeah, thank you. I mean, that's a great question. It's a tough question. I mean, I think that we have to be kind of vigilant in terms of seeing the way that criminalization can be veiled uh, and within other institutions, uh, and but also embedded within other institutions. And I think the, the ideas of mental health on the one hand and education on the other hand are critical sites where it's, it's, it's really explicit now the way that those spaces become sites of you know, punishment and social control. I mean, if you think about you know, the young woman getting slammed in her seat, there's a way in which, you know, even talking back, you know, can get you the probation officer within the classroom. And we see all the time now the ways in which mental health issues are being criminalized and people are getting shot um, because of the way, because of erratic behavior or, or things like this. And so I think that you know, on the one hand, we have to be attentive to the legacies and, and those dog whistles, the politi political dog whistles of uh, what freeloaders, welfare queens, all these archetypes uh, mean and how they become criminalized. But we also have to be, um, you know, really cognizant of the way that law and order has become embedded in these other institutions because of the disproportionate funding that law and order has afforded to the police in relationship in relation to these other institutions that have been starved at the same time. And so, you know, that's a great question. So having sat at the Schomburg Center in the capital of the black world for five years, questions always, I mean, it's sort of, the answer to the question is always in the question itself. So by you're asking the question, how do we name this, this, and this more visible, you're al it's already visible, that's why you're able to, able to talk about it. So the, to me, the obvious answer to those questions is always, what are you doing uh, to teach and educate those who don't know? Because oftentimes we gather in these spaces, although community building and organization is the predicate for other kinds of action. So it's not as if these moments are not important, but they are not sufficient to the work that has to happen for those who are not involved in any way, shape, or form. So how do you make it visible? You make it more visible. You do the work. And so whatever your talent is, whatever your form of expression, Ava made a film, not perfect. So those who, who have a gift of one kind or another uh, to communicate why this issue is so important, I strongly encourage you to use it um, wherever you find yourself located in our social system uh, because there's lots of opportunity um, to teach and inform. So with that, thank you so much for coming out tonight. And thank you to my colleagues at the Ash Center for helping put tonight together.